Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is The Takeaway. I'm Janae Pierre, sitting in for Melissa Harris-Perry. Today, we continue our series, Black Queer Rising. All month, we're talking with Black LGBTQ plus elected officials, changemakers, artists, activists, and influencers, and exploring all the intersections of Black queer excellence. Den Michelle Norris was born with an artist's heart and a desire to create a space for other storytellers who share lives that exist at the intersection of Blackness, queerness, and transness. Her artist's heart allows her to breathe life into characters whose flaws glare up from the page, and her words crack open the hearts of readers, pulling them into scenes dressed in the tension of the unspoken. Din is Black, queer, and has long since been on the rise, and she's the first Black openly trans woman to helm a major literary publication, Electric Literature. As the guiding voice of the publication, she's actively creating space for voices shut out of the predominantly white, straight, and cisgender publishing industry. Din is the author of the forthcoming novel, When the Harvest Comes. Din, welcome to The Takeaway. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Happy to have you. You describe yourself as someone with an artist's heart, but there was one point where you thought you were going to be a lawyer. What changed for you? So I graduated from college in 2008, and, you know, that was when the economy really kind of fell apart. And I felt like I had been raised to believe that if I worked hard, I went to college, I would just sort of be handed some kind of stable job. I'd be able to build um, a sort of independent adult life. And I had worked toward this and been very excited towards it, even though um, I really had wanted at that time to play classical music um, professionally. I grew up playing the viola. And when it just seemed like there were no jobs to be had and there was nothing to be done, um, I I had kind of fallen in love with writing um, in college. And I just thought to myself, well, why not do what I want to do if the economy is bad and I'm probably never going to make any money anyway? And of course, we know how millennials are behind other generations, um, economically speaking, even now. Yeah. But we didn't know that then. I just thought to myself, well, just do what you want to do. If you want to be a writer, try being a writer. And so I I really did. I sat down and I just started um, working hard at trying to write good short stories. I like that. Do what you want to do. You know, every artist has uh, their own reasoning. And I'm curious about yours. Why do you create? What is it inside of you that you want to make sure, you know, comes out and is seen, heard, and and read? You know, um, it's interesting because this is a question that I think for many artists, and at least for me as a writer, the answer is not always the same. Um, you know, I, I think a lot about having a whole career, having a body of work that I can look upon at the end of my life. And so at different times, there are sometimes different things, different forces, different parts of me that I want to foreground and show to the world. But I think ultimately, um, what's behind what I do as a writer is that desire to sort of take the innermost parts of myself, um, the things 
that are in the world that are the, that are the most perplexing to me, the things that, um, the questions that sort of keep me up at night that I'm always pondering, the big existential things. And I want to take those things and share them with the world because my feeling is that there are other folks who have many of those same questions, um, who might be in the same position as me or the same identities as me. And I think we go through so much of um, life thinking and feeling that we're alone in these things and these questions and these um, in these obsessions that might perplex us and we're not alone. Um, and I think we come to art to find that companionship. And um, I think of it a lot as like, I'm taking something from inside myself. I'm taking my hand and I'm extending it to the reader and the reader um, is extending their hand and we're going on this journey together. And once we do that, um, we have a friend, we have a teammate, we have a compatriot by our side. Yeah. I want to play a piece of your work from your short story titled Audition. Are you warm enough, Davis? It's pretty windy and that jacket is thin. The reverend unzipped his coat, unwrapped his scarf from around his neck, and presented it to his son. Davis ignored him. He moved away from his father, close to the edge of the platform, his feet only steps from the yellow rubber that served as a warning to stay back. Davis, the reverend said. He was careful not to raise his voice. Perhaps Davis still needed space. He'd barely looked at his father in the last month, mostly staying in his room. He choreographed when to go to the kitchen or the bathroom in order to avoid an encounter. When there was one, he kept his eyes on the floor and stepped aside, careful not to touch or be touched by his father. At the last minute, the Reverend had booked a flight to New York City, the idea of a cramped seat in coach more appealing than an eight-hour drive with his son seated next to him, petulance spitting from him at every turn. None of it was easy or went smoothly. When Davis wasn't sulking, head down and hands in his pockets, he was a tightly wound bundle of stress. An invitation to audition at the Juilliard School had put him in a full-blown frenzy. The Reverend knew he deserved his son's anger, and more than that, his disappointment but it didn't change the slow realization as the Reverend stood watching, waiting, and listening that Davis, though desperately wanting to be free of his father, simply wasn't ready. He was bruised, by whose hand was of no importance. Wow. Dan, how did this story come about? Where do Davis and his father, the Reverend, come from? So they come from Cleveland, Ohio, um, the suburbs to be exact, an area named Chagrin Falls. And um, they are a family unit that come from a lot of grief. Um, Davis's mother um, dies early on in his life. And so this is a home that is father and son primarily. There's an older sister, but she's much older, so she's largely out of the house. Um but th this is a home and a family that's enshrouded in grief, that's enshrouded in sadness. And I think um, that grief is sort of the root of their inability to um, really connect in the ways that they need to connect for Davis to grow up um, feeling happy and safe and loved. We'll have more from Dan Michelle Norris, Editor-in-Chief of Electric Literature. Stick around. This is The Takeaway.
On this week's On the Media, one former NPR editor's grievances are reverberating far beyond a Substack essay. He claims wokeness is ruining the place. That marginalized people are storming the barricades and dictating that this story happens and this story gets killed and we're going to use this language and not use that language. That's not what I saw. On this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. We're continuing our series, Black Queer Rising, with Din Michelle Norris. She's the author of the forthcoming novel, When the Harvest Comes, and editor-in-chief of Electric Literature. Din, there's a note of religiosity that comes across in some of your work. Talk to me about that. Um, well, that is um, the 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 sort of conflict or tension with religion um, and queerness is, I would say, a central theme in in pretty much all of my work. And that comes from a very personal place. I grew up in a religious home um, and my father was, um, for many years, he was a Baptist pastor in the American Baptist churches. And actually the whole way that my family made our way to Cleveland um, when I was a toddler is that my father got a job um, as what's called the executive minister of the Cleveland Baptist Association. And so in that role, he was over um, some 40 Baptist churches, and he was sort of equivalent to um, what Catholics would call a bishop. And so, you know, religion was the central sort of question and theme in my childhood and in my family life. And it it vaulted my family into this somewhat public sphere, which meant that there was an element of of it not just being a personal, internal family conversation, but a thing that was a lens through which other folks looked at us and looked at our family. And so it was this huge, huge presence um, in my life. And a lot of my work, I think, for that reason, uh, deals with questions of faith um, and its intersections with other aspects of our lives. Mm-hmm. There's a debut novel on the horizon for you as well. It's called When the Harvest Comes. What can you tell us about your forthcoming novel? Um, well, I can tell you that the novel deals with many of the same themes that are actually in audition. It also deals with the same characters. Okay. Um, that story is actually pulled from the novel. It's an excerpt of the novel, um, which was published independently as a short story. Um, in 2020. And it's something that I've been working on for 10 years. And it deals with a very tense relationship between a queer son and his Black father, who's a minister. It deals with a marriage that is impacted um, by the ramifications of that relationship as this person moves into their adulthood. Um, and it deals with questions of of sex and identity and intimacy and grief as well. Um, but ultimately, I'm always working towards something hopeful, and I'm always working towards characters finding their way back to themselves, you know, sorting through who they are and finding a way to live the life that they're meant to live. And you're not only writing your own stories, but you're the first Black openly trans woman to sit at the head of a major literary publication. What does being in your position as editor-in-chief of Electric Literature magazine mean to you? It means several things for me. Uh, the sort of biggest and most personal and most intimate thing 
is that for my entire adult life, I've wanted to be a writer. I've pursued being a writer. I've pursued writing a book and publishing a book. I worked on this book for 10 years, as I mentioned. And so um, that was sort of the central thing in my in my life, sort of professionally and in some ways personally. Um, sometimes that sort of dogged pursuit that an artist has can get in the way of their personal lives in certain ways. And so um, that was really just my number one goal, my number one ambition. Every decision that I made was sort of oriented oriented around would it support my writing, would it enhance my writing um, in any way or move me forward in some way. And you know, that was sort of fine with me. And what happened was along the way, I started um, editing as well, editing for literary, um, independent literary journals, um, sort of like, you know, unpaid work, a labor of love, that sort of thing that is often the case with many literary journals. Um, And I realized that I loved editing, but it wasn't until I got the job at Electric Literature, which is a full-time position, that I began to realize exactly how much I love editing and how much I wanted that to be um, an ambition of mine and a goal of mine and a pursuit of mine and that I didn't, I just don't want to stop editing. And so the first thing it's given me is that I have something outside of my own writing that I care just as deeply about and that I'm just as ambitious in. But I would say that the sort of bigger thing, the more collective thing is that it's simply given me, um, you know, the power and influence to find writers who have yet to sort of have been given a voice or a platform and publish them. You know, I'm really lucky to be at the helm of electric literature because we have uh, 3.5 million readers worldwide. Um, We're really well known in the literary world. And so powerful, important people read our work every day. And it's an opportunity to help writers find agents, um, help writers find book editors just by publishing their work. Mm -hmm. And so I get to, as a trans woman, um, really make sure that I'm finding and elevating trans um, writers of color, you know, to to this position so that we can publish them. Yeah. It's really exciting for me. Yeah, absolutely. And lastly, before we let you go, I wonder, when you hear the phrase Black queer rising, what comes to mind? Honestly, I just think of the future. There's so much more to be done. There's so much more work to be done. Um, and it and I think of all of the stories that aren't told, the ways in which Black queer people are erased, the way that Blackness is often erased from queer narratives, and the way that queerness is often erased from narratives around Black folk. And I think about all of those stories rising to the surface because it's time um, that everyone hear about our lives. Den Michelle Norris, writer, upcoming author of When the Harvest Comes, and editor-in-chief of Electric Literature. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. 